Hello, bold and conscious leader. Welcome to our new and refreshed 2022 season of the Bold Conscious Connections podcast, where we bring to you people who have shown special courage, character, and consistency to express themselves fully. After all, as long as we're alive, we want to live a full life, don't we? So our guests that we bring demonstrate that they do not want to die with their gifts because we're all meant to be given gifts that we share with others. And this is how we play our part in raising our collective consciousness in this world through this podcast called Bold Conscious Connections. So without further ado, let me bring on our guest today. You could argue, what could you possibly learn from someone who is a nuclear cardiologist about emotion, about true leadership, about leading by example, about heartfelt communication? Well, all of these are leadership lessons, and this man who I have just reconnected with after a 45-year gap, and we went to school together, Dr. Jet Li has spoken to hundreds and hundreds of audiences, has had many publications throughout his life and his career, and having suffered a personal tragedy three to four years ago, you know, he is... He is changed in many ways but truly his heart has always been how he leads he's an emotional man i've known him for a long time and here writing this book that he just published last year called human element that man is all heart and i just don't mean physical heart even though he's a cardiologist of course so he dropped so many lessons i don't want to stand between you and this conversation now, occasionally, you might, some of the American audience here might feel it may be harder to understand what he's saying, but because of his passion in the way he carries out his life, sometimes it's hard to follow where he's going, but stick with it. I'm telling you, there are so many lessons here about the whole medical landscape of today, where it's going, where it's been, and what he believes are the true, true ways to stay connected to patients and listen very, very carefully. All right, here we go. On to today's episode. I'm so delighted to welcome Dr. Sharad Jaitley, my old friend of 50 plus years. I will talk more about that in a minute. So Dr. Jaitley, my friend, migrated to New York from Nagpur, where we went to school together back in, oh my God, many years ago. But you came in 1981 after finishing your medical school training. And then after you arrived here, Dr. Jetley went to Mount Sinai School of Medicine, where he also specialized later on at Cornell in cardiology, followed by cardio-oncology training at Sloan Kettering, the world's renowned cancer center, also in New York. Dr. Jetley has published and authored many, many books and, you know, obviously his publications in the medical journals. But most recently, and we'll talk about this in our episode here, is his labor of love, finding the human element, connecting one patient at a time. So we're going to dive into that in this conversation as well. His compassion for his patients, his profound passion to teach both the patient and the medical communities at large. And he's spoken on many forums, and I've had the opportunity to listen to him on at least two occasions. His list of accomplishments is so enormous that I'm not going to dive into that in this moment here, and that'll all be down in the show notes of the podcast as well. So Sharad, my friend, welcome. So happy to have you here. This is a great opportunity and exciting opportunity to now connect on a podcast uh, with you. And uh, I'm just so delighted to be with you again. 
Well, you know, life comes full circle, right? So I think we parted ways when we were in eighth grade. We had a couple of years together by then. And so age of, what would you say, 13 or something like that. And the next time we connected was at the age of whatever, we were grandparents by then. <laughs> right. <laughs> and that was about 10 years ago, maybe 10 or 11 years ago. Yeah, 2011 actually, yeah, yeah, yeah. more or less, yeah. Wow. So anyway, so let's begin with the present, Dr. Jetley or Sharad, as I might call you. One of the things in this beautiful book that I want to start with is compassion is the cornerstone of all therapies. And I think that permeates your heart-centeredness yourself. Yes, you deal with the heart as a cardiologist, a nuclear cardiologist. So let's begin with the present. After all the work in the field of medicine you've done and taught and spoken and written, what led to writing this magnum opus of yours, The Human Element? Well, that's a question that probably takes about an hour to answer, but perhaps uh, I can only tell you one thing, and that is my passion, my heart, actually, I poured into these 350 pages and some within my book here. Perhaps, actually, encompassed my 45-plus years experience since the med school, and I personally feel that uh, human species are bestowed with this extra attribute, which other species also can exhibit, but perhaps uh, we are not able to ascertain them so well. Like e even a calf is born out of a cow or of an elephant and how initially, you know, how protected the mother is. And then eventually the calf moves on as the calf becomes uh, an adult. And next thing it's out in the wilderness and doing on its, on its own. So similarly here, I think the human element speaks about how one can connect from one person to the other with attributes of kindness, with attributes of, uh, say, the respectfulness and the dignity. And nothing supersedes more when you're actually taking care of the patient because that's where the real interaction of the human connection is happening. Because, hey, look at it this way. Who's your best friend outside of your family, outside of your relationship? It's your doctor. Where else would a patient, where else would a person go and actually share the personal life, the social life, the financial lives at times? You know, people have lost their homes. People have totaled their cars. People have lost some loved ones within the family. And where exactly would they go and actually share their grief and sorrow? And that's where I think the compassion really outstands you know, in the entire relationship. And there are times when, I mean, my practice, of course, being in practice for over 40 years, I've had three generations of patients who have actually come forth and seen me. So initially they started off at the age, say at the age of 20, 25, then they grew to our age. And then obviously their children, their grandchildren who have achieved their adolescence, they are still following. So it's a matter of how well you can connect with the patient and the family and, uh, so I personally felt that at some point of time, I must really use a human element as one of my areas, which I've tried to sort of teach both at Sinai and Cornell when I was there through my training and my experiences that, hey, look, without which I think uh, medicine is extremely dry. And mm. it's not only just medicine alone, Raju, but I think in all walks of life, perhaps you're in the accounting business, you're in your financial business, and you're now in, into this profound coaching business where you're actually setting up careers for others and laying out the limelights. You know, without compassion, perhaps you cannot actually develop that person to become a leader. I personally mm. feel that. Well, we'll get into leadership lessons in a few minutes. But sure, the book takes you through, apart from your own personal journey, and I know you've had major tragedy in your life not too long ago, but the book also talks a lot about the current, I saw what was fascinating to me was saw the current landscape of how the medicine is being practiced in this country in particular, 
and how you know America is the leader and other countries follow its leadership. And you have a commentary here on the entire landscape of you know where this is going. And I love there are a couple of funny lines in your book. It takes a patient physician to listen to the story of an impatient patient. Oh my God, that's funny too. I think it, you're trying to say something there, right? So which you just said that that's your human element, because if you're not listening to the patient who in his or her own mind is so impatient about the pain they're going through or whatever it is they're feeling, and you need a real patient physician who's also busy running around trying to catch many patients. And then tied to that is the other comment, which I found fascinating, which was communication is still the best way of practicing medicine. Can you wrap your thoughts around these two for, for us, please, our listeners? Yeah, and I'm glad you picked out uh, maybe perhaps those little, those lines actually stood out in my book uh, so well that uh, an avid reader like you would obviously certainly remember those or be mindful of those. It takes a patient physician to really understand that inpatient patient. Now, the nomenclature is so simple that, you know, centuries ago, you know, the patients came out into the lobby and they sat. And again, you could call them a client, you can call them a person who is seeking help or seeking, you know, patient or, or health care. But the fact is that the very fact that they were patiently waiting out in the lobby, that's how the nomenclature developed and the doctors started to see them as patients. But I personally feel that the doctors over a period of time now, we are coming, go fast forward in the year 2020 or 2023 now, you see that the revolving door that's happening in the managed care and what have you and the doctors and the healthcare providers, sometimes they're called as, sometimes they're called as vendors, which I'm extremely reluctant to be ever be called or be have my colleagues ever be addressed with. But that's exactly how the third party managed, managed care is now addressing many of us. I personally feel, I think a doctor is always a doctor. He is or she is bestowed with that extra attribute to really use that from the inner consciousness, from the inner self that, hey, look, it's an attribute which really he or she can develop during the course of the medical training, but then at the same time, be mindful and be earful to that patient, be available to hear all the grief because the patients are coming with long tales, if you will, mm -hmm. long stories, but it doesn't necessarily imply that, hey, look, you can stop short of them and then try to sort of, you know, understand them by over talking to them. I think I personally feel like Mahatma Gandhi always said that, in one of his, uh, of course, in, in his autobiography, he's been, he's been quoting it quite a few times through the autobiography. He says that man has been provided with two years to so listen twice and speak only half of it. So in other words, you know, the reason is that you become very impatient to really understand the patient. But I think more importantly, you have to be more patient to understand that impatient patient. So that was the connotation I, I wanted to sort of elaborate on that in my book. The second part that you suggested where communication is the cornerstone of all therapy. You need to have that all through, you know, communication, communication, communication. And take, take for example, like if I wrote a test for a patient and a diagnostic test and did not want to explain that to the patient. And in the meanwhile, my nurse calls me and says, yeah, I'm ready with the next patient. I personally feel I'm not justified enough with that patient. I need to explain that test well. I need to explain even a small prescription, as simple a thing like penicillin or an aspirin that doctors write. And I constantly say, I think it's important, one of my lines in the book you perhaps may have also, and that I say that it's easier to write a prescription than not to write. It's easier right. to write a test than not to write one. Because that's where I think you need to sort of pedal back and say, wait a minute, I'm writing a prescription, but what am I expecting the effects here? Am I expecting any drug interactions? I mean, so the caution is always there. There's a line also there about the prescribing the drug. I think you said something about the side effects or the actual effects. 
I forget right. the actual Absolutely. line there. Know, know the side effects before the indications of the medication. It's very, right. very important. And forgotten is one of the things that, again, to all is human, as I always say, but to compassion is also human. You need to be very compassionate, even if you're writing a test, it doesn't really matter. And one of the things that I sort of uh, inculcate through my book is never, ever discuss the results over the phone. Even though now we are stepping into telemedicine and artificial intelligence and robotic mm -hmm. medicine and, and the past three years, you know, we all have learned through this pandemic and the aftermath, how distant one can be and, you know, or tending to be and still pe people are not returning back to their offices, perhaps. They're still doing a lot of remote uh, learning and uh, teaching and what have you, even though I'm totally for this in-person interaction. I can understand if you're trying to interact somewhere, say, from out of state and out of town, but I think within the town, I think one should really sort of make it a point still to have that interaction and go to the office and see the patient and what have you. So these are some of the things that I think are extremely, extremely important to develop that in-person connection back again, even mm -hmm. though we are just really barely out of this uh, so-called pandemic, I personally Yes, so clearly that's opened up the eyes for many people and the world in, in, at large. Your book, as I said, runs through the landscape of how things are changing, have changed, and they will continue to change. Also throughout the book, you've talked about taking care of yourself and self-care as a patient. So you don't appear in front of the doctor too many times in your life, right? As you said, there are some things money cannot buy. One of them is health. For everything, there is MasterCard to repeat the advertisement that MasterCard. So let's talk about that for a bit. Yeah, truly speaking, you have to be in good shape to really go and see a patient. Let's put it this way. It's like, mm -hmm. this is where you lead by example. You know, like I'm literally a teetotaler, if you will. I'm not a smoker. And uh, I exercise well. I'm not bragging about myself and keeping myself in good weight. I think I've added a couple of pounds in the winter, but I think that's the norm with all of us. But the fact is that, you know, as soon as the weather gets better, and right now it's snowing here, as soon as the weather gets better, I do my three to four miles every day. So the, you lead by example. And I think that is very important in any leadership positions, whichever you are. And I know you have devoted so much time in your book, say as well about the leadership. So that's one thing. Very importantly, I think it is so clear that you could be doing things which they could be unsaid messages, for instance. There was a time, I believe, uh, not too long ago, just 20 years ago, 25 years ago, doctors used to sit in the offices and smoke mm. while they're seeing the patients. And that was a horrible thing. And yet, three minutes later, they'll walk into the other room and say, hey, stop smoking. It's easier mm. said than done. But then you're not leading it by example. And that so you was think doctors have been uh, not leading by example in general? Yes. Hmm. And I think it is so crucial, especially in this profession, you have to lead by example. I would say that anywhere, if a leader is required to come in, I mean, that's the definition of a leader. I would say that I think you need to have one, which you need to have your self-belief. You have to have strong conviction that, hey, look, I can do it. Therefore, my patients can do it. I'm just trying hmm. to draw a parallel here in your profession and sure. my profession here. And I'm trying to see how well actually does and the similarities are amazing if you go. It's exactly how you would expect if you're a renowned coach, you're actually asking your disciples, your students, your pupils to actually follow the way as you want them to be. You need to lead by your own example. And that's exactly what I try to do in medicine. So, mm -hmm. you know, there are times when, yes, have I deviated on maybe on a Saturday morning where I've woken up at 9 a.m.? I do, but I think in general, I would still try to stick to the book guidelines as much as possible. And I would encourage all your listeners right now, their residents, fellows, or 
doctors in training, especially the young people. And it is so important that, you know, I was returning back from the University of Virginia just a few weeks ago, I think I mentioned to you about where I had about like 120 MDs attending the grand rounds. And many of them were remotely still attending, which I was kind of like not so thrilled about, but almost like 40 to 45%, they were all in person sitting in the auditorium and listening mm -hmm. to my talk. One of the take-home messages I advised to them is clearly, I said, look, you could do what you're doing in medicine elsewhere, but nothing like what you're actually reading in person as a matter. Believe it or not, Raju, I've seen many times in my own profession, not to mention about how the world is going, especially with the managed care where, you, where they want you to see more number of patients at the end of the day. But I think it's more important, again, the bottom line is the quality of medicine rather than the quantity of medicine, which is so mm -hmm. important for us to really, you know, encompass. And because that's where you really feel that hey, you've gone the entire nine yards and helped those patients out. As simple a thing like an aspirin, as simple a thing like penicillin, as simple a thing like how do you lower your cholesterol? It's easier said than done and say, hey, look, stop smoking, Joe. But you know what? No. How do you ask that patient? How do you have that patient quit smoking? And that's that it takes extra 60 seconds. Similarly, like a diabetic patient who may show up in the office setting. I think what you're speaking to is so important. So, you know, what happens is that we all... You know, as people get older or they have a heart issue, like in your case, as a cardiologist, you deal with mostly the heart-related patients. The doctor has said to start walking, you know, walk so much longer. The doctor says not to eat this. As if, you know, in that moment, now that you have the problem, now you're going to have to follow doctor's rules, right? We all have this, you've heard it over history. Yeah, doctor has told me not to do this anymore. Well, we're saying it is not about the doctor. It's about you first. What have you been doing? So it's easy for me to say, stop smoking, eat right, don't eat sweets necessarily. So what is that special way of communicating to them that comes from them, that gives them that enlightenment that, hey, there is a change in lifestyle that they need to not only make for themselves, but to also set the example for whoever their younger loved ones are, you know, who just watch them suffer. So I think that's kind of what you're saying, right? So what is the way of communicating? What is your special way of communicating that gets them to really see things differently? Many times, like the physicians have been talked about, oh my God, they're using some scare tactics. It's okay to use scare tactics. You know why? Because, hey, what if I'm sitting by the beach and there's suddenly there's an announcement, whales and sharks have been sighted. What do you yeah. do? The first thing you do is you pack up your igloos, pack Rock up your bag and head out of there. Why? Because the beach is getting closed. There is a scare tactic which has been employed right now. Same thing is right now. What are they telling us? Hey, it's going to be blustery. It is snowing right now, and it's not sticking on the road yet, but advised caution. So similarly, in medicine, it is so important that we say, look, if you continue smoking, you're going to be having so-and-so X number of risks for your cancer, for your heart right. condition, what have you. When you scare those two biggies, like the cancer and the heart condition, believe it or not, that mm -hmm. sort of sticks here in the brain. Yeah, you yeah, know, yeah. Raju? And that is one of the things that people are extremely, extremely worried about. We can still talk about ulcers that develop. People say, hey, I don't smoke in my stomach. In the medical textbooks that we can talk about, where there is your acid levels are actually higher because your acids in stomach tends to be unneutralized as a result of smoking. So, you know, there are a whole bunch of things. Many a times what I have done is in my practice, actually I ended up opening up a textbook for them. And I said, look, this is how the lung is looking if you already smoked for 20 years. It looks like half the choked chimney, if you will, but not about your own. Those that have already been doing it, it's not so late, but 
now there is first an emergent thing that you have to solve for, and then we can deal with long-term solutions. That's what you're talking and, about. And you'll be surprised because when you tell them that two years, if you stay quit smoking, you'll be sitting in a non-smoking aisle. If you will. <laughs> in other words, you will actually switch over to your risk factors back to the non-smoking section, if you will. And remember the plane rides in 20 years ago sure. when we used to have smoking aisles smoke. and non-smoking sections? Sure. Those things sure. are gone, thankfully so. Yeah. But, you know, that's the analogy. In other words, your risk factors can immediately swing back. Likewise for the cardiac conditions. The coronaries sure. have been really shown to regress in their atherosclerotic if you switch your diet, you go back. And one way or the other, I always tell my patients, look at it this way. If you were to have a bypass today, if, you, if I was to give you a bad diagnosis and say, look, you have lung cancer or some spot which looks scary on the lung, what is the first thing you're going to do? Quit smoking, right? Quit smoking. Aren't you going to do it then? You might as well do it now so this way you can prevent the onset of the disease. So that's yes. the whole idea. Well, having known you personally, I can I know that we, you just mentioned that you, you don't drink much, maybe a glass of wine here and there, but I I know you you're he's like people you're a plant-based guy, you're a vegetarian. So here is guy is a cardiologist, nuclear cardiologist, successful in his right. He practices what he preaches. So love that. Now, in terms of the future of medicine, just one minute on this because AI is so popular. People talk about this all the time. Of course, AI applications have been in search research for, for decades. So you mentioned in a book, AI robotic surgery, for example, right? So reconcile the human element and all the things we're talking about, compassion, you know, for, of a medical doctor with a patient that that needs to return. How does that reconcile with, well, surgery is a whole different ballgame. There's no conversation happening with the patient. So what did you mean by that in the book? Right. I mean, like I alluded earlier, I think the past three years have really sort of moved us apart as a result that we are now starting to see a lot of patients, you know, remotely on a telemedicine. I'm not very thrilled about it, but pandemic really made us do that. Okay, well, now the pandemic is over. Let's bring back the patients back into the offices. Let them come back and have that time with you where patients can actually ask all the diagnostic tests and the therapeutic options perhaps you can lay out on the table for them. So there was a time where actually, like during the pandemic, the elective surgeries were actually postponed. So the bypasses, Somebody was having a gallbladder removed. Somebody was having, say, a hip fracture or some other, you know, some chronic ailment that could have been entertained. You know, all of that was really pushed back when the emergency surgeries were happening during the pandemic. So mm -hmm. that really backed up so much with their schedules, uh, speaking about the surgical aspects. But artificial intelligence has evolved, obviously, in the past maybe eight or ten years. Patients now are being evaluated more on consoles, on computer consoles that are clear algorithms, which actually spell out your cardiovascular risk factors, perhaps. Mm -hmm. And again, they're coming out of Harvard, they're coming out of Brigham. All these studies are all thoroughly backed up. I'm not saying that. But the fact is that that human touch, the human connection, the human bond somehow is not being maintained. I personally feel it's a good idea to have the artificial intelligence. I'm really from for the new school, Raju, but I'm still also holding on perhaps the baggage of the old school with me. And that is, if you combine the old and the new school together, I think perhaps that makes a position, especially the younger audience that's listening to us. I suggest that, you know, you can't have them separated. They all have to be together because without the human connection, I think the artificial intelligence is more like, you know, in fact, they found there was uh, not too long ago, there was a study done in the state of Connecticut where they actually had robots going and giving medications on one half of the aisle of the ward and the other half, the nurses prescribed the medications. At the end of the day, they sent out questions to these patients. 
The question is clearly spelled what? You know the answer. The nurses scored tremendously high as opposed to the robots giving, hey, this is your digoxin. Hey, this is your Lasix for the day. So, and that did not have that human connection, even though they were very appropriately and thoroughly doing it without any errors, without any, yes. but the compassion was lacking. You know, here's a nurse who goes and holds and checks the pulse and says, hey, Jane, how are you doing today? Hope you had a good breakfast right there. And then checks your pulse, checks your blood pressure, and then gives you the pill and then leaves. And it's that component. I'm not just saying the human element within the doctors, but the entire team. That's what makes us the multidisciplinary team. I remember the good old years where, Raju, I'm sure you also remember perhaps, is the doctors always made rounds with their nurses, with their pharmacists, with their perhaps even the pastoral care, and of course the social worker and the dietitians on the floors. And that made a great interdisciplinary sort of an interaction on rounds, yes. both for the patient, their families, as well as for the doctors. And it was a learning process, not that hey, look, I'm walking in like an expert there and I know everything. And on the contrary, I knew I started to learn more from the night before what happened because the nurses who were on the call the night before, you will learn amazing things about the patient from them. And that's how I personally feel that I think we need to, you know, again, it's a matter of how you respect. So I think it's the bottom line what you're saying is that really for those listening that, you know, be human first. Of course, use whatever technology that's available to you to leverage you know, proper data, perhaps, and accuracy, but you cannot substitute the human connection at all in all of these because you have to really focus on the patient and not and the human, and not just be say, okay, the robot will perform the surgery and everything will be good because the patient still has emotion, has feelings. If you're so mechanized and if you're getting so advanced with our robotic and artificial intelligence, I think there is no excuse left for the physicians to return back to the bedside and spend more time with their patients on the contrary, because now things are getting a little more easier for you if it is so mechanically done by the robots. I think you have more time to come back and, you know, spend more time with the patient family. Use that time for that effective communication. Yes. Beautiful. Correct. Correct. So as humans, we live these lives, you know, you can have five bodies that are dead and you cut them up. Everything is the same about them internally, right? But if they were alive, it's that energy and that emotion that you feel. And that's the the aliveness, right? That you see in people. I believe this fact that we're spirits in these human bodies temporarily. Our souls are here to learn through these experiences of this human body to grow from it, right? Through being human, you're able to connect and that's part of the human element. But we also know that all the learnings happen from traumas and severe turning points in our lives, left turns that you didn't expect to, that will occur because there's an expectation that life will be normal and everything will be fine. That is not the case, as you know from experience as well. So what turning points and challenges have you had that really have been big turning points for you, pivotal moments for you that you came to obviously go through and then overcome? And then what did you learn from it? I know that's a mouthful, but give it a try. Yeah, it is. I know you're already aware of the tragic occurrence in our lives and our lives are totally upside down now at this point after having lost our younger son. It's very unfortunate what happened, but the fact is this is something which is irreplaceable. We commonly hear for ages, time is the best healer, but when somebody loses a son, I think this is the biggest grief that a father My wife is suffering and she's a physician as well, as you know, Mm -hmm. and both have this uh, grief and sorrow, which is just continuous with us. Now, what Mm -hmm. has happened is time is not the best healer, but I think time has made us learn to accept 
I think the acceptance is more perhaps a cushion in a way, if you will, to comfort us in a way that this was beyond our capabilities. Some things are like patients can have, people can have cancers. And I know you have had some personal experiences and losses. And so I personally feel that, I mean, you can literally like time and again, I've, I've sat in my office and I told my patients, I said, look, you can burn down the house, you can total a car, but when you lose someone dear one in life, that is irreplaceable. You can always come back and replace a car. You can always come back. And even if you lose a job, you can always find another one. Those are the biggest losses that I think we commonly encounter in our practices and in our lives, I should say, in everyone's lives. Somebody died of cancer, somebody died of heart condition, of sudden disease, of chronic disease, or what have you. And obviously the emotions and everything is attached. But then that is where I think the life, the preciousness of life, Raju, that sort of makes you feel that, hmm, it sort of hits you like a brick on your face and, and say like, you know, what do you do now next? Are you willing to continue with your profession? Are you willing to continue with the building a legacy in terms of, you know, leaving behind what you achieved in these past 40, 45 years? You want to give it to the rest of the people which you are already giving as a professor anyway in your practices. So there is the time that, of course, the grieving continues, but then the acceptance, I think, is the key that sort of puts you back on the track and lets you navigate through the life, even though that devoid, that absence is always there and yes felt. And so, I mean, that's how I personally feel. It's a moment that I cannot live without remembering our son, Moni, and his siblings, two other. We have another son and another daughter. We all are suffering. My wife and I, we are obviously the parents, so we have the hugest. So that's the biggest loss anybody can have losing a child. Yes. So I personally feel that this is something which has devastated us, but then life goes on at the same time with, and I just continue to say to myself that you learn to, you begin to accept the fact that this was meant to be, whether this is I'm speaking spiritually, whether I'm speaking philosophically, I mean, we can tether that out, but I think more importantly is how one really copes with this loss is the matter of making that the person has to do. Are there losses that, you know, if you peek into somebody's life, there are losses that he or she has encountered, but this is the biggest loss I always say to myself. But yeah, there's no greater human loss than the loss of a child. There's, I don't think there's any degree or measure here. But, you know, again, in terms of what you learn from it, I think, as you said, you know, gracefully accept you're part of a, a bigger picture and that's part of the life. And there are all ways to justify yourself in your mind, you know, to calm yourself, that everybody has a different process of grief and being able to overcome. But in terms of using that fuel as fuel, an expression for what you are here to do as long as you're alive. I mean, you're grateful for your other children and grandchildren, of course, but the expression, I mean, part of this is your book. I think the human element, the book shows your human heart, not just the heart, physical heart, but the high heart, as we call it, that's divinely given to you. God has given you also you that gift to be able to share with the world and be especially expressive in the way only you can and that no one else can, because I call this a gift of grief as well, because, you know, as you know, I lost Kim, my wife, to cancer, and it's part of the gift of being able to express that. And that's the learning, I guess, for me and my spirit to say, okay, well, you know, what can I do while I'm alive to be able to make a positive difference to whoever else 
whether it's my family or beyond or community or others. I think you've done an amazing job, frankly. And this book is just one example, and hopefully you'll have many more. Look at the amazing example yourself you are, because you're exemplary a father of four children, and obviously the two children, you know, that you have raised in the absence after since Kim left has remarkably, you know, affected you. And but at the same time, you're really carried on the baton so well and, you know, and still doing it with such an amazing fatherly heart, I should say. It's the mother's job and you're carrying it out as a dad as well as a mom. Well, you're playing two roles here. And it is very, very difficult, I can see personally. And, you know, again, nobody can really put either of us in the other man's shoes, but you know, we all are having this suffering, which is profound. There are no words to it. Yeah, so I appreciate you saying that. But my point is just simply that, you know, whoever is still listening and watching or watching this, you know, no one has a special grief or a special trauma because God chose you to get it. It's not that. It's not like I always say, as it says in my book, life isn't happening to you. It's happening for you and it's happening through you. You're not bigger than life, right? But as long as you're alive you know, what you can do is do the best you can. You can sit there and complain or worry about or give way to fear for everything you go through. But, you know, and this is not about positive thinking. I don't, not a believer in positive thinking because you have to feel the emotion, you have to feel the anger, you have to feel the frustration. You can start with saying, you know, why did it happen to me and what did we deserve and what did he deserve and what did she deserve? You can go through all that, give that some kind of vent to do that. But frankly, there is nothing to resolve because you're not in control. So you were in control when you were born and you're not going to be in control when you die. So the point is, I always say the opposite of death is birth, not life. Between birth and death is your life. So it give that life meaning. So anyway, this isn't meant to be about me here. But so uh, back to you, Sharad, what does it mean? So, you know, the work that we do, it's largely about bold and being conscious and leadership does not just mean, you know, leadership in a job, but, you know, we're all leaders for our own heart. So I think it's personal and heart leadership. So we define bold in our book as, you know, being decisive, being ambitious, having the conviction, but we also say heart-centered and humble. What does bold mean to you and why is it important to you today, given all that you've been through? I think some of the things that you've already touched upon, and I can draw a parallel here between your philosophy in the book as pertaining to mine in the human element. I would say the way how bold comes to me is, I think it takes a lot of courage, a lot of perhaps, if you, if you were to define it through the Oxford Dictionary, it'll talk about the valiant, how stubborn perhaps one can be, how, how strongly you have the conviction about something. But I think it centers towards more towards the courage. And when it comes to the courage, I'm building my own courage to come out and be the same Sharad Jaitley, even though I'm missing my son. And that itself makes me, I think, in my role, courageous enough or bold enough to really, you know, be able to face you in this uh, talk on a, on a podcast. And I personally feel that at some point of time, I think every single listener out of your podcast uh, series, at some point of time will follow the guidelines where whatever career they perhaps wanted to follow. I'll give you an example, for instance, like we all have raised our children, obviously, coming back to the children. Say at the age of 16 or 18, they can learn to drive. Haven't we all had our hearts in our pelvises when they first <laughs> took the ignition keys and pulled the car out of the driveway? I think the kind of sinking feeling. Yeah. I'm, I'm oh finding God. like a poet here what the heart is. The heart really yeah. sinks into your pelvis. And you say, oh my God, is she driving? Is he driving all right? Hopefully he or she, this is the first time he's pulling the car out. So I'm, the point, but the courage was there. Eventually, 
the kids have come through us, no question, by through our spouses and us. But at some point of time, they must move on with their lives. And that's the first time you hand over the ignition keys to the child and say, look, go ahead and pick up a slice of a pizza and I want to see you back in about an hour safe home. So there is a little boldness. Now, go fast forward. The child has now graduated, has become a med school or has gone into a business school and now he's about to set up his career or her career at the age of 20, 25, having done the post-graduations and what have you, is there a courage to set up a career someplace? How, no, actually, she or he wants to do even further post-graduation, wants to do. Look at the courage, the boldness, how the child, now not the child, now an adult is actually taking that step. Mm -hmm. So I think I personally feel the courage and the boldness persist throughout the life in whichever phase of life and sector you can, you're examining the person. For instance, I was returning back from the library after a couple of hours and, you know, the roads are very slicky, very tight. But the fact is that, hey, there are cars that are zooming by. I think it's a lot of courage for them to really zoom by in that fashion. But that's in a wrong way. Perhaps you have to be a little more careful at this time and you're actually driving on a slick road. And so the point I'm making is, you know, I know it's a little longer answer than you perhaps expected out of me, but your book really speaks about where I saw that I think it's important that every person has to have that courage to really establish himself or herself into a position, whether it's a career, whether it's a relationship, even recognizing yourself, like I just said earlier, how I was trying to come back to say, hey, I'm Dr. Jakey again, and I can be on a podcast, even though I'm missing him. So that's the boldness that sort of strikes me. By the way, bold has the word courage, which means the dictionary meaning of bold. Core comes from the Latin word core, which means the heart. So back to the heart. That's the whole discussion here is about heart and human. So what are your practices to be more conscious so you can live perhaps a disciplined life or perhaps more awareness and being able to live fully, right? That's what we're all about. I think the way the consciousness, when you say, I personally, the way it is connoted to me or the way it's conveyed to me is the inner consciousness. And the inner consciousness yes. is only the awareness, the wakefulness. I better set my goals right. I better come to myself in my paths, which is the righteous path that God has, if you're spiritual, God has destined you mm -hmm. to really follow. And there are only a few handful of sort of the subset of virtues that human species make it so distinct than other. And some of them are, I think we've already talked about, like the kindness, the compassion, the respectfulness, mm -hmm. the sympathy, the empathy that you and I, we can derive from, from each other, perhaps, which will be more more at a conscious level, be more meaningful to me and meaningful to you or to the person whom I'm addressing than anything else. A lot of the times, for instance, there is a cash value perhaps at the end of the day that the boss wants to say, hey, look, you're going to get as much bonus and maybe perhaps that'll make you happy. But you know what will make him more happier is the pays and the kind of work that the person performs. So that comes in from the human element, from that personal interaction, which will impact more, I personally feel, at a conscious level rather than mm -hmm. at the pocket level, if you will. Yeah. So I right. think the consciousness really comes in from what you are conveying through the book, which I, of course, read. That inner wakefulness, the inner awakening that's happening that now is the time that I really need to look myself and say, look, is there still enough that I can really contribute to the rest of the surroundings, to my colleagues, yeah. to my family, my spouse, and what have you, in whichever settings mm -hmm. you're in. So that's where I think the consciousness 
really comes in. The question really was, do you have any personal practices that keep you grounded and keep you in that mode of consciousness? Okay. That was the question. Yeah, well, you know, like I think we've talked about where you're feeling constantly that, hey, look, it's easier said than done. Like, you know, like we talked about the quit smoking, like we talked about prescribing an aspirin, prescribing sure. a penicillin. So it's easier said than done. And, and today you have all these handouts. You don't even need the handouts. It's all over the Google. You know, your doctor Google is really helping a lot of these patients anyway. But where does that human connection come in? And I personally feel I think that's where at the conscious level, where you take that extra step and go the nine yards, if you will, Roger. And that's where you'll say, hey, look, I think I have done my part. And when you come back and put your head back on the pillow, you feel so comfortably, you, you'll sleep through the night. And so look, you know, you've done your part, the best part that you could have done. Because many times we return back in the night and we always want to ask one question. Could I have something done differently than what I did today? That is the biggest question somebody has to ask. And that's where the inner consciousness will speak out to you, say, ah, maybe I can do better. I'm not saying that every day in my life always is a perfect day. Don't get me wrong. And it's never a perfect day with anybody. But is there a way that I can improve upon the next day? Maybe the relationship that I can actually concur with my mm -hmm. patients or imply on my colleagues or my subordinates or whatever else that's happening in my circle mm -hmm. of life. So I think right. it's so important that consciousness level has to be recognized and one has mm -hmm. to be wakeful. Very good. Awesome. So one of the things that people you know, in our audience, a lot of them are business people, workers, employees, senior executives, perhaps some budding doctors. I'm not sure. It's hard to know it's every person in the audience. So in sort of as we try to wrap this up, what advice would you give someone who is that kind of a person navigating today's unusual uncertainties? I say unusual because we've been through you know, a crazy time the last few years and now the economy is looking grim and so on and so forth. So combine that apart from the advice, one or two lessons that you have learned, you know, leadership lessons that you've learned this far in your life. And then how does that apply and give advice to those that are listening? I think be yourself. I always say be yourself. You want to be, again, the weather is constantly going to change. It doesn't matter. The environment is constantly, like you said, the market is constantly going to go up and down. The pandemics, will, this may not be the last pandemic. I got bad news sure. for you here. The good news, there'll be more pandemics that perhaps are coming our way, unfortunately. But we have to be better prepared for it. And how do you prepare yourself? As long as you have that conviction within, it's the self-belief that, hey, look, I can weather this as well. I can come out and be authentic to yourself. Mm. Be true to yourself. When you become, you're truthful to yourself, you're authentic to yourself, you have that level of credibility that you have to establish that level of credibility first within your consciousness. And then only you can imbibe it to the others of the people who you want to lead. So like I said earlier, like, you know, you have to set an example to the patients first. And, you know, and that's an unsaid message right there. That's what makes a leader, I guess. So I think it's so important that one has to be extremely, you have to garness, garness all the credibility perhaps around you and be consistent with it. You have to mm -hmm. be constant with it. It's not like, hey, I showed up once and then after that, I'm going to see you about a year later. No. You have to show yourself that, hey, you're consistent. You're always there for them. And many times I personally feel that, have I had, you know, oversights? Of course, everybody has oversights. But then you learn from the failures. And failures should only teach you. So that's where, you know, those errors, those mistakes yeah. in lives, whether it's personal, whether it's professional, whether it is interactive, you know, in the surroundings or what have you, those should not happen. And if you can correct and if you sort of mend those errors on the way or actually right at the same time, I think that makes you a better leader. 
it's easier for all of us to take the bows when the credits come. You follow what I'm saying? But at the same time, <laughs> when the failures occur, we are seeing some of the top leaders actually shy away from the scene. And next thing is they're not around at that time. So I think the true leader is somebody who takes the bows for the credits, no question, but also takes the accountability. There is a responsibility that you take yeah. your responsibility. And all of these qualities, perhaps, or the principles, I should say, are good guidelines to be a good leader, I personally feel. Yeah. Whether it's in medicine, awesome. whether it's in business, whether it's in any profession that your audience is eager to hear about. Well, you guys have all heard it from the doctor here. Authenticity, being yourself. Number two, learning from your mistakes. And thirdly, being consistent, right? Sorry, I didn't say that in the same order that you did. But that is the key to showing up. And, you know, failures are part of the path. And that's why we always say, the, you know, failures is nothing but you know, a hurdle that yours is special for you that's being created for your path, especially. So hurdles are themselves the path that you're leading. Well, you know what? The last thing I have to say here before we close, sure, there's the learning and the wisdom. Every time we have conversations like this, we don't take anything for granted. So I've learned a lot, even more than I knew before. Learning never stops. It's a process that's co-creative. You know, we all learn from each other. And of course, our audience that's listening doesn't take this for granted. So I appreciate your presence here today. Actually, in my book, I also say, use the line where I say to myself, and I'm kind of a little whimsical between my lines. And I said, learning only stops when actually you don't want to learn. Well, that's true too, <laughs> or you die. <laughs> so, so I refer you back, I refer the audience and your viewers to my book, The Human Element. Yes. Here's the back of the book. It has a little blurb on it, a little lemon here. And of course, this book is available on Amazon and Kindle. Yeah, we'll, we'll put that in the show notes, Sherrod. So what I was about to say is that in the context of not taking anything for granted and learning all the time, is there anything in that vein that you have discovered about that you might have discovered in this call. I think you summarize it very well. Learning never ends. Like for instance, like you said, there is a time where you actually go beyond your own belief and actually take it to the other person. And this is where I personally feel that we always learn every step of the way. I think there are no shortcuts to it. Mm -hmm. Like, did I learn something today? Absolutely. I mean, there's something so importantly defined in your life that you have really gone through. And I've learned it from you, as a matter of fact, how you have coped through your circumstances. Of course, you know, and there's no one to compare whose circumstances worse or better than others. But the fact is that you learn from each other. And then when you see yourself that, hey, look, you've come around from a, so many near-death episodes, I should say, where you have learned yourself to stand up and save your family and put them back on their feet and back on their tracks. It's amazing what you've done. And so there's a learning process where you can learn from each other's lives and derive strength from each other. And that's what makes us, I guess. And sometimes I begin to wonder that, you know, strength is commonly defined as how much can you take before you actually break. That's all the strength. But I say the other way around. I say, look, how much can you endure before you break? Oh, that's beautifully said. How much can you endure before you so break? So I personally feel that how much can you endure even after you break? I think it is so important that because once if the heart is broken, if you will, how do you endure all of this and sort of come around and cope with that? And that's what we had discussed also through our talk here today. So you know, your listeners, I'm sure they are benefiting from you more than I, but perhaps I think we, we oh, both no, have no, such no, no. great battles altogether. This is really about you, Sharad. So, but if you discovered some of these things during our conversation, then I'm happy as well. So delighted. But I, I know that, you know, leaving aside the hurdles we, you know, I overcame, this is about 
all the things you're still overcoming right now, and we all are, but you are, you know, living a day to day and every day is a new day of finding expression, finding authenticity, being consistent and, you know, learning from every single moment, man. So I really appreciate and, and you being, being here. your own. And I think it's so important. Like you said, it's so important. Yeah. I'm yes. gratified, truly gratified, Raju, for this opportunity. Well, thanks so much. And I hope to see more of you soon. And listeners, bring out your journals, make some notes, and I'll put the details of how you could reach Dr. Jetley if you need to talk to him, but also go get his book and I'll put the link on the show notes as well. Thank you. Take it easy. Thank you so much, Raju. And give me a holler next time when you're around this area. So we'll, we'll of course. see you again. You got it. Thanks so much. Okay. Always a pleasure, brother. Okay. All right. See you guys. I really hope you enjoyed this episode today. We strive to bring you conversations that make you think, reflect, and perhaps inspire you to take even one little step in your path towards personal growth and greater wisdom. Please download the show or the podcast episode that you just heard and leave us a comment so that we can continue to bring you meaningful and relevant topics in the future. Take care and thank you so much.